Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Good? Yes, sir! I know who I am! Did IQ just drop shot? I could have been. I, I have plans. I like this All shit. It is a you know it's Dance off, bro. It is your Me destiny. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Let the games begin. Hello and welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And this week we are doing episode 13, but part two of our Paul Thomas Anderson retrospective in which we will be tackling the films Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love. Without uh, getting into all of it right now, I'll just check in with Lee. How you doing, sir? I'm good, man. I am excited. Uh, we, I've, been, I've been waiting to talk about these films for because I've seen them now. I've seen them about two weeks ago now, so I had all this stuff floating in my head. I sat down, I wrote it all out uh, this afternoon, and uh, now I'm excited to, to finally move on with my progression with Paul Thomas Anderson, because uh, once we get this done, I've got, you know... Uh, another, I think our next one is um, There Will Be Blood. It's just on its own, isn't it? So, I mean, yeah, that's uh, yeah. So, I'm, I'm excited to just go into that one because I already have conflicting reports from others about that. And I really, really? interest, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I know a, a number of people just don't like it at all, and a couple of people think it's the greatest film ever made. So, I, it's, I know where I no idea where to lie on this one, but I'm excited to find out. So yeah, but I'm but I'm already loving my uh, my time with Paul Thomas Anderson here already. So that's why I'm cool. No matter what, I'm looking forward to it, good or bad. <laughs> Excellent. I'm looking forward to it too. Uh, these two are fun that I, uh, they're fun ones that I, I really appreciate. They're films that I've I've grown to love over the years. Uh, mm. As we'll get into Magnolia just in a few minutes, uh, it's one movie like we were saying just before we recording the show. It's a movie that I think I've outgrown. It's not a movie that I like to visit. I, I do enjoy some of the performances in it and stuff mm. like that. But I think that the larger themes now are are things that I don't necessarily feel the need to see over and over again. Right, Whereas right. Punch Drunk Love is one that just, it's the gift that keeps on giving. You just sit down, <laughs> you watch that, you try to figure it out. And it's not a difficult film to analyze, you know, but there's always something depending on, it's like a mood ring. Yeah. You know, depending on, you sit down on it and you're like, okay, tell me another story with the same images. And it, it, it kind of fits with, with that. So, but yeah, once we get into There Will Be Blood and especially The Master, uh, I'm looking forward to those two, especially because I, I, I don't consider that Anderson has made a bad film at all yeah. yet. Well, it'll come, perhaps. We'll see. <laughs> perhaps. You think it's inevitable? Uh, I don't know. I No, I think this guy's going to continue crafting something. A lot of people would consider Inherent Vice much uh, lesser work. Sure. Uh, but, I mean, once I sit down and watch it again, uh, it's, it's one of those movies that... It's a strange one, but... Uh, you know, we'll get to it when we get to it. I don't want to get into it right now because we've got weeks to go. To <laughs> exactly. So, what I'm going to do right now is before we get into it, I'm going to play the trailer for Magnolia and we'll see you guys in just a minute. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a line to you from an opera. I want you to give me that line back in the language in which the opera was originally written. And for a bonus 250, uh, you can sing it. I'm Stanley Spectre. There is the story of a boy genius. Roy Catherine, Thomas Kidd, Jean-Baptiste Poclamelier. And the game show host. I'm Jimmy Gator. Live from Burbank, California. First question for 25. This French playwright and actor joined the Béjar troupe of actors. And the ex-boy genius. I'm Chris Kidd, Donnie Smith. 
I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Earl Partridge. I have a son, you know. You do? Uh, find him. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey. His lost son. What did he say? Because I am not going to take care of him. What does he want? And the dying man's wife. I'm Linda Partridge. I took care of him through this, Alan. What now, then? Me and him, do you understand? There's right. no one else. No one else! The caretaker. Hello! I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you help me out. And there is the story of a mother. I'm Rose Gator. You come home soon after the show. I love you. And the daughter. I'm Claudia Wilson Gator. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? And the police officer in love. I'm Officer Jim Curring. My life is very stressful, and I'd hope to have a relationship that is very calm and undemanding and loving. So if you are this person, please leave me a message at box number 82. And this will all make sense in the end. This is not an easy job. I have to take everything and play as it lays. Sometimes people need a little help. Sometimes people need to be forgiven. And that is a very tricky thing on my part, making that call. But you can forgive someone, well, that's the tough part. What can we forgive? Was that unclear? Kind of. God. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed the trailer for Magnolia. And so, let's see if we can break down what Magnolia is. Magnolia uh, came out in 1999. It's uh, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, obviously, and it stars... Tom Cruise, Jason Robards, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julianne Moore, Philip Baker Hall, Melora Walters, Melinda Dillon, John C. Riley, Michael Bowen, Jeremy Blackman, and William H. Macy. Those are the big names. I think Alfred Molina's in there as well. Yeah. He plays Solomon Solomon. And he's <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit part. It's a bit part. <laughs> exactly. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the blurb. Just a description from IMDB because I didn't bother writing it down. It would have been too complicated for me to explain because... It's, there's a lot to it. Uh, it says here, it's an epic mosaic of interrelated characters in search of love, forgiveness, and meaning in the San Fernando Valley. So the setting is essentially the same one as our last episode. And yeah. so interconnected events. So, Lee, how do we start this one? I guess um, general first impressions. What, what did you think about the... What, what was your first take when you seen this for the first time? Uh, let's see. When I saw the... Foot mill, I was 19 when I saw this for the first time. I saw it the year it came out. And oh. I would say that as a 19-year-old that was impressionable... Aren't we all? <laughs> was conf- uh, yeah, I was confused, uh, to tell you the truth. I was confused at how the movie 
could be structured in this way. Now, the 90s were a big period for film, especially like from starting in 1994 and even 1993 with Robert Altman's Shortcuts, which I told you to watch and we could get mm-hmm. into a little bit after that, not necessarily in terms of description, but how Magnolia is essentially a tribute to Robert Altman, uh, mm. in my opinion. You would have... You know, I hadn't seen shortcuts at the time, but now in hindsight, you can see Robert Altman all over it. It's exactly <laughs> yeah. it's right there. You know, even if you go back to 1976 Nashville that I've seen recently as well, and even the player that came out the year before in 1992, mm. uh, before shortcuts, you can clearly see that Robert Altman is Paul Thomas Anderson's most likely his favorite director. Right. So yeah. I think that this is at once a tribute to Altman and a love letter to Altman and Hollywood at the same time, Mm. especially for the time it came out in 1999. So that would be probably my first impression of it would be like, wow, what the hell is this? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I have never seen Tom Cruise in this type of role before. And and he would have been a big draw at the time, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and there's very out of character for that type of guy. Yeah. yeah. Jason Robards, I I knew uh, a little bit of from the Westerns that I had seen him in. And so that was cool. William H. Macy, I had seen him in Boogie Nights, so I was interested in seeing because he had caught my attention as a as a, as a Fargo. Fargo would have been out by then. Would you have seen Fargo? Oh shit! Yes, you're right. Fargo's '96, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you're right. I had seen Fargo at that point. So yeah, I guess yeah, Jerry Lundergaard would have been one of the guys that uh, I. Anyway, I liked Macy. I knew his face. It just slipped my mind. <laughs> uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was on everyone's radars as well as a, a guy that was really coming into his own as a as a really sure. solid actor. Julianne Moore as well. So I mean, these people all coming together to make this type of film. I mean, I was like, okay, these are all actors that I kind of know. They're kind of taken over. Looks interesting. Paul Thomas Anderson with uh, Boogie Nights had impressed me already at that point. And I yeah. was like, okay, geez, this is this is kind of cool. It's fun to hear of, of, of your first, like the same arc that you're going through, you went through. It's kind of like interesting to compare to like where I'm seeing this obviously older and with Mm -hmm. so much more films ahead, you know, knowing that Paul Thomas Anderson would become this director that a lot of people appreciate and and respect and admire as such. It it, it comes to a different, uh, you know, it obviously affects your impression of them because you know that the films are going to be respected. So, you know, you don't know that. You didn't know that going in that you were going to see the next, you know, great film from the next great director, you know, you, so that's, you could have an inkling about it, but you wouldn't know for sure that this guy was going on to bigger, brighter things one at a time, you know. So that's, I find that really interesting because I'm seeing this, the retrospective part plays heavily into my viewing where you were just right, perspective right. part, you know. <laughs> at that point, yeah, at that point, yeah, definitely. I, I My expectations of the film, it's hard to place. I like. I, I was looking forward to seeing a Tom Cruise serious drama because I hadn't seen one in a while. I just didn't know what I was getting into, but my the thing was I watched on your recommendation, Shortcuts before this. And that was weird, because (laughs) I actually think I started to kind of dread Magnolia after that film. Uh, I understand. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Because Shortcuts is a a well-made, great, thematically interesting film that I I enjoyed watching, although it took forever to finish. Uh, It is a long-ass film. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it sticks out in my head, you know, I, I can, I can picture these characters in this place and the, and the, and the stories that connect them. It was, 
like watching several episodes of a well-written TV show right. back to back, you know, and and tying it all together. Uh, I I was interested, but at the same time, I immediately had a problem in that uh, I, I I wasn't connecting with the characters uh, on a, on a uh, on a human level. I was connecting to them on a thematic level. So when it came to Magnolia, and knowing that this played heavily into Paul Thomas Anderson's filmmaking for this film, my impression of this film was completely different before then. And then going into it, I was like, oh no, I this is not the film I thought this could be in any respect. I'm interested to see it. I'm interested to see what he does with this kind of story. But if this is another 3R causally connected story, I don't know if it's for me, you know. I don't think this is the kind of story I like to see that often. It, it doesn't speak to me personally. It just speaks to me as a film enthusiast. Which, you know, is not the most important thing in the world. But, uh, you know, I always like to... You know, you always hope that you're going to find the next best film that speaks to you personally. Right, right, right. right. And I, I was kind of right. In that take, it didn't speak to me personally, but I did, I enjoyed it enough that I would consider easily watching it again, like in a year's time or two years time, because I did, I, there's so much about it I, I really did enjoy, uh, and there's so much I did take away from it that I really, really enjoyed thinking about, that um, I it, it, it made it more than worth my time, even if I don't think this is a perfect movie or uh, an interesting movie to me as a person, mm-hmm. I still think this is a fantastically made Made, you know, film. This is a this is a great cinematic piece, and yes. and I, I on that on that sheer admiration and capacity to appreciate art in itself, I thought Magnolia was a wonderful film in that sense. Good, I, I agree with you in that sense because if you take shortcuts, short, I mean, cuts is literally in the title. Yeah, right. And when you're watching it, but so much short. Feel- well, that's it. You, you the definitely, <laughs> you you feel Altman's presence because you're like, okay, he cut there, he cut there. It it feels like a lot of this stuff was rushed, you know, and so it feels like independent cinema. You know, there's little tinsels of John Cassavetes in there, and you know, you're trying to grasp whatever the hell he's trying to do with these things, and you're like, okay, I get it, it's interconnected, but is it interconnected to its just for interconnected its sake. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Magnolia is a little bit different to me. It feels like he took shortcuts and he polished it. Mm. Just a little bit. Try to make it a little bit more shiny. You know, where you'll have shortcuts that's represented by a broken heart. Then you'll have Magnolia that's represented by a flower. Yeah, yeah. Right? Something mm-hmm. that has these petals. And it's they're all connected by this one bud at the middle. Yeah, yeah. Where you're like, okay, that makes sense. Whereas, you know, in shortcuts, like I said, with the broken heart, it's it's on the Criterion package anyway. You're like, okay, these all these pieces go together in the heart. But when you pick up a heart, you're not supposed to be able to take it apart. <laughs> <laughs> that is that's that is something interesting as a comparison between shortcuts and um, Magnolia that I did appreciate. I love that this is definitely Anderson polish. You know, mm-hmm. this what was interesting about shortcuts uh, is that thematically and narratively and like sort of on a screenwriting level, it is a like a wonder of interweaving stories. You know, it's impressive as a connecting piece. But right. I wasn't attracted to the way it was shot I, I thought it was very minimal yeah. it was very it was very base film filmmaking which was kind of it worked because of the kind of the, the normalcy of, of the characters it was trying to represent you know that sort of working class kind of background that everything yeah, there yeah. Was th- that 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 cinematography worked for those those people in that area because it was very everybody in it was really a common person of some kind where Magnolia it's it's TV production and it's you know uh, you know televangelists and child stars 
those, you know, it's it speaks uh, about you know grander characters, you know, bigger you know, police officers. We these are bigger, brighter Hollywood type characters than they are local people that you might know. And so that Anderson takes that and and gives us real control with the camera. We get we get a TV show set that you know we push into the kids, and you know we get a, a you know a a crime story interweaving between that that you know has quick edits and, and ducking into the forest for John C. Riley and shaky cam when he's 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 getting to the body in the girl's house. These these little touches to the stories help visually represent each story differently, mm-hmm. and uh, that that sort of attention to detail makes for inc- incredible filmmaking from a, a sort of camera's perspective, which to me makes it more interesting as a complete film than shortcuts in its sense because it, it's the more complete package for me. I mean, in the sense that at the same time it is essentially a, a remake of the notions of shortcut. You know. Oh yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so it can't get all the credit in the world that you know you would love to give it but at the same time as a, as a sort of follow up to Shortcuts it appealed to me more on that sense of thing it was definitely a more watchable movie put it that way oh definitely and I, I want to bring back what you had said somewhat about Boogie Nights and how sex is treated in Boogie Nights and how you were saying that sex is treated just like a workman relationship yeah. where we go behind mm-hmm. the scenes and the drama isn't necessarily presented to you on the television screen when these people are having sex the drama is off the stage you yeah, know, no yeah. one's really reacting specifically everyone's just watching and everything's yeah, fine yeah the coldness of it and, yeah exactly exactly and it's kind of pleasant because Anderson plays that card again in Magnolia, where mm. it also is the behind the scenes of this whole production. Everyone yeah. is somewhat related to this production, mm-hmm. but we're not interested in the show itself, although we do get a glimpse of the show, somewhat like the porn when we saw in Boogie Nights. That's true. But we do get the what's going on in the background, how yeah. these characters are interwoven through this uh, TV production. Uh, that's going on, like, a how smart are kids? I don't remember the name of the TV yeah, show, yeah. but how, how smart are the kids or something, something like that. Like that. <laughs> and so, yeah, I really appreciate that. I appreciated the sentence that you had said in Boogie Nights and how that went. And when I was re-watching Magnolia, I kept in mind what you had said. And I was like, oh, look at that. Lee's gonna... Th- this fits in again. It seems like a more polished version, a little bit of what Boogie Nights was. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so the way that I thought Magnolia was, was not necessarily an antithesis to Boogie Nights. Mm. Because... If we look at how Anderson dabbled in the ensemble film when making Boogie Nights, I thought that Boogie Nights, in hindsight, was essentially a commentary on how families are formed. Yeah. The strong bonds that people can have uh, if pushing towards like a a common goal. In this case, it was porn, which is kind of funny. And I, I know it sounds pretty that way but (laughs) and some people that have seen boogie nights might be going like what the fuck is jason talking about (laughs) (laughs) no but we did we talked about uh surrogacy uh uh, you know surrogate families and stuff it was a huge theme in boogie nights yeah what I'm talking about is everything before the second half of the film. Okay? <laughs> but then in the second half of the film in, in Boogie Nights, ego sets in and all comes crumbling down and is somewhat repaired in the end yeah, of the film. Yeah. I think that with Magnolia, Anderson is kind of deconstructing that idea of familial notions. Yeah, yeah. He takes another spin at it. I agree. Uh, it's not It's not the same take. It's not It's not about surrogacy. It's more about the foundation of the relationships and, yeah, exactly. and, and, and the factors that affect that as such. And it's not so much about right. finding family as in already having family and what takes that away or what that, that family can take from you or, you know, what it could mean to you and how many ways you can interpret it. It's a, it's a connecting theme to Boogie Nights, I agree, uh, but it is, it's another take and it's definitely, I would say, more, it's more thorough.
thorough in this in this narrative than Boogie Nights exactly. was. Boogie Nights was sort of a subtext we could pick up on. This is definitely right. more a context of the, of the characters. Exactly, and I appreciate that because, as I said, I mean, he dabbled with the ensemble film. You know, mm. everyone in Boogie Nights is focused around one main thing, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone's trying to head in the same direction, and as soon as they start going in different directions, everything starts to crumble again, and then they reassess and reevaluate. Egos are set aside, and they go back to making what made them great together. They go back to reform the familial structure. Yeah. Whereas in Magnolia, Anderson is using what Evan Smith is a scholar. I don't remember where he's from, but I remember reading an essay. Right. He describes the structure of Magnolia as what uh, as thread structure, mm-hmm. as opposed to the traditional ensemble piece in Hollywood in movies such as like Ocean's Eleven, Heat, Saving Priving Ryan, uh, The Usual Suspects, um, and even The Big Chill. If you want to bring that one in, sure. Where everyone conglomerates around one specific thing, one common goal, and that's what brings them together. There's no real standout. Right. With the thread structure, what he's trying, what Evan Smith is trying to elaborate on is that every single character in Magnolia has a specific arc. Right. You know, mm-hmm. they're interwoven, you know, through one common thing that I'm going to get to later with what Lee has now named Jason's crackpot theory, <laughs> which is going, it's going to be a fun new addition to our yeah, retrospective. That's my Jason's favorite parts of the show theory. is Jason goes nuts. <laughs> And so I think that with the thread structure, everyone has a character arc. Everyone has a beginning, a middle, and an end. We meet the people, even if it's not at the beginning of their mm. lives or something like that. It's at the beginning of where they're headed. Yeah, yeah. The change is going to come through Magnolia. And that's it. I thought that I wanted to adopt that, the the idea of, of a thread structure. Because in order to attack the themes that he wants to attack and... I know a lot of ink has been spilled on the fact that this is a movie about regret. And I think that's narrowing it down too simplistically, yeah. down to, to, to one specific thing. And I don't think it's about regret at all. It's in part about regret, but it's also in part about resentment and self developing self-confidence. It's also about trust. Yeah. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of those things that, that are there yeah, that yeah. You, you need to try to that, find. That's definitely an element that factors into certain characters is regret. I mean, as, as much as sadness factors in, you know, or, you know, loneliness. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's plenty of almost all characters at some point kind of have a moment of that, in, 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 yeah. whether um, introspective or active uh, and, and, and real in, in, in what's portrayed on, on, on the screen, you know. But that doesn't mean that's what the film's about. That's just an element that uh, a number of characters experience. As exactly. And so I... I'm, I'd like to basically call Magnolia what I what I'd call a tapestry piece. Right. Yeah. And because of the uh, using a thread structure, whenever you're knitting or if you're sewing something together, when you're trying to make this this uh, embroidery, this tapestry, you'll have the characters that represent these specific threads. But then if you have the themes interwoven, you'll have specific things that are going to intersect. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So you know what happens when regret meets resentment? What happens when trust meets? Uh, developing self-confidence what happens when sadness meets resentment or loneliness meets trust yeah exactly you know and so i i feel like when you're looking at specific characters you'll see them kind of go through uh, specific changes throughout the film and they have to develop uh, uh, I don't know certain aspects of themselves like we'll take Stanley for example who who's learning to develop self-confidence yes, right, right. Uh-huh. he needs to confront his father yeah. who's a little bit more of an oppressor right so what happens when self-confidence meets oppression you know through there and yeah. how is it filtered through the TV show and how the, the executives are actually oppressing Stanley yeah you know, yeah even the kids even the other guests are, are oppressing him they, 
they won't let him leave. They, he has to stand up and do his segment. Yeah. So, you know, exactly. exactly. It's it's a huge factor on that particular character. It's not a huge factor on a number of characters. You know, it doesn't, it's not universal. That's what I mean about elements, you know. That, right. that doesn't, that oppression doesn't apply to, say, uh, Frank, for example, you know. It doesn't, not at all. No. But you could... You I'm sure you could tie it. something, but I mean, I'd, I'd, you'd be yeah. scraping, you know, the barrel for it. It's not the big theme, but yeah, no, it, that's that's. You're right. No, no, it's definitely not a big thing. You're absolutely right. It's, it, yeah, but, that, but I, I like that idea. The concept of um, these variables, all these different mixtures of numbers and equations, kind of meet at the end, and just yeah. different out- outcomes of that. That's that's definitely something Magnolia weaves well. The, the tapestry idea that exactly the idea that I came up, you know, when I was talking about, it, I was like, okay, if I give if I give Stanley a specific color, so self confidence would be red, and then if it re- meets oppression through his father Stanley Bowen, you know, uh, you'll be okay. Well, that means what? Let's say that's blue, you know. So what does blue and red connect? You know, yeah, so it'll make yeah. a different color. So by connecting all of these people together, you know, on this giant, like I said, tapestry, you'll come up with very very specific colors of interconnectedness uh, through what the the show is going to be. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right? So mm-hmm. the themes are interwoven with the character arcs through thread structure, which I appreciated. Like, I had, I had no idea who Evan Smith was, and when I started researching and reading about it, because I wanted to see what it meant, because like shortcuts uses, uh, I think, thread structure to I, a certain I would extent. Think so yeah, and Pulp Fiction does it, but it does it to subvert many things. Mm. You know, whereas in Magnolia, you'll have specific ends. You know, they'll have culminations. People are going to have this 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 cathartic moment at the end where they're going to be able to come to a realization you'll have a movie like pulp fiction where you don't exactly know how Mia wallace ends up you'll see that marcellus is doing okay even if he was raped but you don't know where it fits into the story you get attached to vincent but his arc ends with a gun (laughs) he gets shot in a bathtub after taking a dump in his obsession with using bathrooms in the movie (laughs) and so it's very weird that that the one thing that he uses to relieve himself is eventually the thing that leads to his murder Mm. uh and, you know, Pulp Fiction basically comes to dead ends. We don't know what happens to Honey Bunny and Pumpkin at the end of the movie. That's Whereas right. in this case, you know, I think the only person that we, we kind of are left on with, with a little bit of a, how can I put it? An ambiguous end as such? Or? An ambiguous end, yeah, would be Frank T.J. Mackey, hmm. right? You, you, yeah, what, you, does he go, what does he do from there, you know? Does he, does he continue being Frank or does he go back to being... Yeah, we don't you know, get a conclusion to that at all, which is uh, great. <laughs> it's but it makes sense it would mm. make sense that we don't have that conclusion because not everyone has afforded that or yeah. awarded that it's not it's not what i'll get into it but the the, the point uh, that the film is trying to make isn't about what these specific characters go on to do but what they represent as such exactly so that was my little bit on, on how the structure is and and how i wanted to bring in evan smith's thread structure sure. because it goes against normal hollywood conventions mm. where you'll have a beginning a middle and an end but it's going to be a specific group like i gave for Ocean's Eleven, they're coming together for a common goal. That's not what's happening in in um, in Magnolia and movies like Pulp Fiction, where this isn't a common goal. It's actually a how can I put it? There is one aspect of commonality that links them together, yeah. but that doesn't necessarily have a huge impact as who they are. Hmm. But I'm going to get into what I'm want to talk yeah, about in terms of structure. Get your get there. your crackpot theory on. We, oh, we, you want me to do yeah, that? Yeah, no, we've got a grounding, but let's let's move let's let's move to crazy. <laughs> I think okay, I think okay. people need uh, now now they have a the base understanding uh, right, that makes well, sense for the context of the film. Now let's see what yeah, you okay. bring to the table. <laughs> All right, well, here it goes. Crack, Jason's crackpot theory number whatever. 
Well, with regards to uh, the thread structure, I uh, I wanted to see what was, again, uh, interwoven throughout the film. And I wanted to assess, based on the opening, the six minutes of the opening that is basically happening with regards to chance. Sure. Um, I thought that the structure seemed to tackle a couple of religious notions, philosophical notions, and scientific notions. And as I was saying a little bit earlier, I thought that Magnolia again, in my opinion, deconstructs the familial unit and shows how there is still harmony in the chaos. And to me, chaos usually points to thermodynamics and the concept of entropy. And given how every character in Magnolia is dealing with these personal crises, Mm. things happen, coincidence perhaps, but everything seems to be converging towards a specific point. And that point brings in the philosophical aspect of the Omega point. Uh, Quote, evolution moves exonerably toward our conception of God, albeit never reaching this ideal. Now, what that is, is usually represented as as a spiral, you know, where we're all converging time going towards this one little Omega point where everything is going to become this one thing. Now, people have gone on to interpret Teal's theories, calling it a singularity event, lopping on a more scientific approach that is akin to a dying star that's creating a singularity, a black hole. Right. Now, I'm going to quote something from the NASA website. And this is leading somewhere, by the way. I'll believe it when I hear it. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to quote NASA, and I say, A black hole's gravity can sometimes be strong enough uh, to pull off outer gases of the star and grow a disk around itself called the accretion disk. A gas from the accretion disk spirals into the black hole. The gas heats to a very high temperatures and releases X-ray light in all directions. Now, let's put all that together, okay? The idea of entropy and chaos converging eventually to an omega point, this one specific thing, and the omega point basically going into this black hole that is sucking everything in. The way that I saw or chose to interpret Magnolia was that Earl Partridge is that collapsing star. His dying slowly is creating a gravitational pull and that gravity acts on every character in the film that is somewhat orbited around him for a specific time. Now... I know that Anderson didn't think about any of this when he was writing the movie <laughs> to specify that. But I, what I do appreciate about the film is that it does call attention to chance events, you know, but in disbelief, things cannot be, it, it just can't be one of those things. The thing that comes at the beginning of the movie, this cannot be one of those things. Yeah. And then with the painting at the end that says, but it did happen. I think that Magnolia does a great job of showing that no matter how big or how small events can seem to be, the effect of a singular event might send a ripple through space time that has an impact on multiple organisms. I think that Earl Partridge's death brings these people together. They're all sucked into this one singularity. And as a result of his death, they will come out changed Mm -hmm. in the end. And so as such, what I thought through Magnolia and the structure, Anderson creates collective catharsis through death. That's that's, that's great. And so that's my crackpot theory on how to interpret Magnolia. But this is... uh... This is probably my uh, my favorite crackpot theory because not only have I I followed it to this nth degree, but I think that actually that taking out the the science element uh, to an extent it connects so well to the thing. I think that's uh, that's that's really it's obviously not the intention, but it speaks directly to the theme exactly as it is. So so it's it's one of my favorites so far. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. I mean, to me, it gave me something more to look for while I was watching the film this time around because. 
I know I, I like interpreting yeah. what I'm what I'm seeing, and if if a director can give me something to work with, I mean it it makes the the I don't know film analysis just a little bit more fun yeah. for me. You know, it's not just reviewing; it's actually looking beyond what's actually being told. It, well, exactly. Uh, uh, the thing about how Magnolia and specifically is told is because it's how that works for it specifically is because. It has a great reliance on thematic notions. It it, right. it dares you to interpret it, you know? that It doesn't give you straight answers all the time. Paul Thomas Anderson clearly intentionally wrote a film to be interpreted and reinterpreted. Right. And uh, that that's important then that we can you can continue to debate these kind of notions. I mean, like, the notion I came, connecting things, oh, you're entirely right. Physically, I, I entirely agree. It does revolve around Earl and that singularity concept. I, I think that actually works on a lot of levels, how they all coincide. They and, and, yeah, converge. But I, as far as the connection of the themes, what I got from it was communication, was, was, the, big, right. was the big connecting thread. Oh, yeah. For yeah, me. definitely. Because it, it defines where each character's arc starts, and, or as, as such of what the issue, what the conflict in each character's arc is, and then what the resolve is, is, is always related to communication. Whether they can communicate, they want to communicate, they can't communicate, there is a thread in each character. So let's say Earl, okay? So, uh, and his relationship to Frank. The conflict there is that uh, they haven't spoken to each other. That's They haven't communicated. Earl wants to speak to Frank, but Frank doesn't want to speak to Earl, and how that arc ends, Frank does finally tell his father how he feels, but an interesting notion about uh, communication here is that by arcs end, it doesn't always, the resolution is not entirely conclusive for the characters. It doesn't doesn't give them catharsis at all times, because this is supposed to be a story that's straddling real life human, you know, ideas and themes that, that actually speak to larger traits in humanity as a whole. That's, you know, that's this really happened. That notion is because this is supposed to be a film that ties together real human beings and, and the things they experience. Experience. So, if this is supposed to be a story that's about real life, communication's not going to fix everybody's problem. It's, but it is the problem that everybody has. So yeah, Earl doesn't get to say his piece to Frank. He's robbed of it because he can't speak. He's already dying. But Frank gets right. the, Frank gets his catharsis. He gets to tell his father everything he's thought about them. Uh, the issue for um, Phil Parma. Yeah, his role in the story is he wants to get through to Frank. You know, his role is he is to be Earl's voice. Also, Linda can't tell. Earl how she feels about him, you know, that she's developed love for him, you know, and that that heartbreak is killing her, and she can't fully describe it to her therapist. She wants to get across exactly how terrible this is, but it's not coming through. Nobody can hear her. Same for Stanley. Nobody hears him. Uh, his father doesn't hear him. The the stagehands don't hear him. Uh, Jimmy doesn't hear him. You know, Jimmy does start to hear him, but the idea is not coming through. He doesn't understand. Nobody speaks the same as Stanley. You know, at the same time, Jimmy he gets his point across. He admits to his. Dad Death, his affairs and his, his his molestation of his daughter to his right. wife. There's that idea that communication can't fix everything. You know, definitely. It it, it defined. He was never able to speak fully about how he felt. He buries his his ideas and problems in drink, but at the same time, the crime in this case it's too big. It's damaged too much. You know, the collateral toll is too high for his wife to take. So he's not going to get that saving grace that he so wants. Even the frog takes it from him. You know, he can't even kill himself. The poor bastard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's made to suffer. You're yeah, absolutely right. He is made to suffer. Definitely. Again, uh, it continues. I mean, Dixon, the, the, the kid, can't get across to Jim. 
who killed the the person at the the, the body that he finds in the apartment. He tells him, he speaks to him, he lets him know. But because the language he uses, it scares Jim. He doesn't like to hear what what the kid's saying, so he chooses to ignore him. Communication factor, you know, destroys that relationship. Yeah, he, he did pick up on one thing though. You see, there's an interrogation, you know, and she he brings in the I think it was I don't know is it the black woman from the beginning where she's being questioned by the police and they ask her, do you know who the worm is? Right. Have you ever heard of the worm? Yeah, I, I remember that's that. Exactly scene. what the the young boy, the young boy during yeah. his rap, you know, he's saying like the worm, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah. told you who it was. <laughs> it wasn't. It was. It was a Jim who who asked that. I thought it was another police officer. It's another police officer asking yeah, the black yeah, woman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if he got the information from Jim, or if they're they're following up a lead or something like that. But you're absolutely right. Jim's arc in this film is that he starts. He doesn't listen. He doesn't. He doesn't listen to Dixon. And he doesn't listen to Claudia because uh, Claudia's trying to confess. You know, she's trying to say that you don't understand me as person i i break laws i'm messed up you know you can't handle what i have but all he wants to hear is the romantic side of it you know i will take you on they're not communicating to each other they're speaking around each other you know so it's a huge theme for him but his arc when he finally comes to grip he starts listening to to donnie smith who uh again has an issue even expressing how he feels to the bartender that he loves you know that he, he feels attracted to he can't tell him how he feels unless he gets inebriated but jim he when he listens to donnie smith he gets a you know a reward from heaven. He gets his gun back. <laughs> you know? Oh, that was great, wasn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. Intervention in this case, exactly. And, and he gets his sort of. That's a more. Um... It's an opt. It's an optimistic look at how, yeah, how the... religion factors into Magnolia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, what I'm talking yeah. about earlier. Everyone's converging towards this omega point. You know, and and where you know I started talking about science a little bit. Then religion refactors in at the end of the movie, where he's like, "Oh, prayers actually." Yeah, do. yeah. When 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 the science starts to, you know, we're doubling down on the science. We've left all the religious ideas behind. Exactly. There's a little, there's this little tick, you know. Yeah, there's <laughs> this giant plague of frogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you get my point. Communication is is this huge control theme uh, that sort of dictates how the characters. It's it's a great cautionary tale about the ins and outs of our abilities to express ourselves. That's what I got from this anyway. Our, oh, definitely. Our, how we speak to each other, how we don't hear each other, and mm-hmm. the problems that kind of come from all. As you were saying, all the variables with the threads. What you get when you mix all these compounds together. Right. That's definitely what the narrative does. But when it comes to the specific colors that you're getting, that I think speaks louder when it's about communication as the theme. You know that. Mm-hmm. what they're trying to express that the, the outcomes relate directly to how these characters inevitably can and can't say what they want to say I think that's great and I think that that gives me a little bit more to work with in terms of themes because I like I said I didn't want to just take it as regret because that that's just summing it up to yeah. something so simplistic it's what Earl says on his deathbed but the movie's not about Earl it's about what's around Earl yeah well exactly exactly yeah <laughs> and I think the communication is is really definitely the big one because mm. even if you can take the communication theme and bring it to Stanley, he, he can't communicate to his father how he's feeling. He yeah, can't communicate exactly. to the other lady that he has to go to the washroom, you know? Yeah. Even like, you can even think that Stanley's father's a bully, but he can't communicate to Stanley either how much he's impressed by his knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, there's my little bastard or something. That's what he calls him. Uh, yeah, he's you know, like it's, it's aggressive. And, yeah, 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 exactly. And think about think about how Frank communicates, you know, in his interview. He gets slowly more aggressive, you know. His his inability to admit to other people who he really is, that eats away at him, you yeah, know. That's his from, hu- biggest problem. But that's the funny duality of that is he's a public speaker. He's yeah. this guy who straddles the line of communication. He... 
he knows how to talk to people uh, as this character, you know, in his own identity. He is this fictional person he's made up. He is the perfect speaker. He gets to say exactly what he feels to all these people. But really, he's just channeling something of him that he could he never got closure on so the film actually explores frank as his own character we get to see how he really reacts when he sees earl he breaks down he fuck you he hates him his abandonment issues come right to the fore you know uh, that's that's huge uh, in his arc yeah but it's kind of that, that's a clearly a very awesome moment i want to stick on communication for a second because you brought up something i just re thought about it and how communication you said it becomes a problem even when uh john c Riley's character um uh, officer curring uh, after he's mm. arrested the black woman when he finds the body in the closet when he's there there are other people that are trying to get some information yeah, he's yeah. the first guy on the scene and he's told to be quiet right so there's he's yeah he's yeah. told literally we do not want to communicate with you so i thought that was interesting that you would bring that up that's great that, 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 that thank god there are other right. facts because <laughs> but i mean it's really fun because even John C. Riley's first interaction with um, uh, Claudia, yeah. Yeah, the, exactly. there is a communication issue. They can't even hear each other, on, right? Yeah. So they can't necessarily understand each other. There definitely, is something definitely. in between, you know, blocking them from doing that. I did like Frank T.J. Mackey's character a lot because he was a walking contradiction, a person that is a public speaker and yet can't communicate the real things in life, yeah, talking yeah. to people that are essentially just like him. People that have been trampled on their whole lives that can't necessarily get out what they want, how they feel, you know, and it's about conquering women, yeah, which is another I, I love that weird aspect there's the, of the scene, whole movie. It's a subtle breakdown that after the interview, he goes back out on stage and he starts he, he, he starts his tirade against men yeah. for the first time. After all we've heard about him, that's him. That's, yeah, he's slowly that's just, div- yeah. uh, like unraveling and we're seeing both people on stage at the same time, this complete contradiction. Yeah. He's telling we are we are terrible terrible people man are monsters you know and uh at the, but at the same time but that's their power you know mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that was great i loved that that's fantastic writing yeah. unbelievable i love that character exploration exactly i think that character is the one that's the most well developed for me and i think it, it yeah it pays dividends with tom cruise's performance as, as that guy i think it's really interesting how at the end the reason why his father he doesn't want his father to die can be like so many different factors either because first well this is idealistic he might want to get to know him to see if they could develop a relationship but i also think that he doesn't want him to die because that hatred is the fuel he needs to continue being yeah Frank tj mackey exactly and exactly so he's kind of at the end of his 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 well we'll call it his cathartic moment where he comes to terms with don't die you asshole yeah you know, yeah don't fucking die you know, I need you in ways that maybe are not the best ways, but I still need you here. Yeah, that's, because well, that makes me who I am. The life that he's managed to carve for himself is so fundamentally based in that his father did this terrible thing, left him to look after their dying mother on his yeah. own. That to, to have any sympathy with the man, to watch him die, is already going to rob him of the even when he even hears the conversation that his father is dying in the interview. It immediately affects him when he goes back on stage. So I mean, it's huge to him. So I think that's that's that, yeah. that makes. I don't know why we. I don't think we ever needed to see what he does. What happened next i don't think that's important no but i think there's there's this line i suppose we could get into it uh so i had i had an issue with 
with the the film in that it was around centered around the concept of this is really happening. You know, there's there's that tagline. You know, this is this is based in reality. This and, happens. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is a thing that happens, and that to me that said that this was supposed to be happening to real human beings. You know, this is something that beyond just a cautionary tale, this was supposed to be a character story. You know, so it was supposed to be more than just what its themes represented. It was supposed to be something we could look at actual human beings and see how these themes affected them in the moment, you know? But my problem is that this film doesn't have... It's not about... It doesn't have the time to to establish real characters. Uh, What it does do great is that these characters are emblematic of certain notions. I think you support that in your sense that you were saying they are different variables and their collaboration, you know? that's, That's indicative of how these characters are grander themes. They... They mean something. They're not just people. They're meanings. Yes, yes. Uh, and that, to me, that's that's both the greatest, the best thing about Magnolia, and it's and also its biggest flaw. Right, the it, thing that fucks with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because if these are themes, then they're not people. You know, the the message can be relatable to human beings. Definitely, I think that's. Right. Uh, I think we can all sort of see a little of something human in Magnolia. But if the idea is that these are things that really happen to people, that this is something that this notion of all these connected stories, that's more than just coincidence. You know, it's, or, or you know, there's a sense that this can really, this can really affect us. Mm-hmm. Then these had to be more than just themes. These had to be we had to see these characters live and breathe a little we had to see them outside the movie's needs we needed to see that they had their own wants and desires beyond what the narrative had planned for them and that's something that it can't deliver on because this format that it's in this uh this ensemble piece this thread structure format it can't be both it um it doesn't have the time to explore these characters as human beings and to me, that feels that felt like not connecting a final dot. You know, if the the overall arc of the story is that this is, is relatable to us as humans, then it should have happened to humans. We, we needed more time to spend with these characters, uh, and and in that sense, we probably needed less characters because the film's overreaching at this stage. We needed more time to breathe, therefore we couldn't have some of the stories and the st- to be fair i don't think we needed a lot of th- this many variables you know we could have done without a couple of them although i agree that there's something to gain from all of them sacrificing some to finalize that final dot i think to me that that was more important and that was a misstep as an idea look at linda she's not a character she's not a human being she's not a real character she is a, she's a set of principles she's an arc that is affected by these ideas of like love and heartbreaking and uh, and to Depression and you know isolation and inevitable loneliness and suicide and and retaliation to that that to me is 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 massive important story to kind of tell thematically right. but that's not a human being that's happening to we don't know what Linda is outside of the things that happen to her and to me the film doesn't connect to me personally because there's no people in it right as a cautionary tale it's it's fantastic but you know okay. you can only be warned to a certain extent. If you want to you want to explore fully humanity, I think, and especially with, with the theme that this is really happening, this needed to be more focused on establishing real characters, not just themes. So that's it's a tiny it's a slight to me. I still really love the film, but I, there's this piece of the jigsaw missing of the of the tapestry. There's a thread. There's one last thread that's just missing, and there's just this little space. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that I'll interject by saying that I think that it, it awards um, Magnolia with a little bit of a timelessness. You talked about a cautionary tale, and I'm a guy who studied fairy tales. Yeah, I've also studied Shakespeare, and I think that by leaving these characters as we'll call them, I don't know, uh, stock characters, <laughs> term, because that's exactly what they are. Yeah, when, I get. Yeah, when you're reading fairy tales, when you're reading Shakespeare, you'll have stock characters that'll have like some sort of development they'll have like their character arcs and whatnot but you can rely on the audience to associate you know to identify with specific characters in fairy tales and in uh shakespeare's works and so in that sense the reason i came up with that idea is like when when quiz kid donnie smith is um in the bar being sick at the toilet um he starts talking about answers that he's given out uh, throughout uh, his his career yeah. as quiz kid Donnie Smith. And he does mention uh, Hamlet. He talks about Claudius. Sure. And so I said, okay, well, if he's starting to talk about Shakespeare, I mean, they could have taken any other quote. It could have been from the Grapes of Wrath. It could have been from anything. Yeah. But it's specific to Shakespeare. And that kind of just gave me the little bit of, oh, he's going that route. He's trying to use specific archetypes or stock characters in order to build on the grander themes so yeah you're not yeah. wrong you're absolutely not wrong no they, they are meanings and maybe you consider it somewhat of a of an empty well not empty you're saying that it's missing a thread yeah to just, me just that's what makes the timelessness of shakespeare and fairy tales is because if they're morality tales you will be able to analyze them in ways that will fit a specific time as i did before with my crackpot theory where yeah. you, you can lump things onto them and it makes that timelessness of the tale uh interesting in my yeah opinion. yeah I, I entirely agree and that that is something that's what magnolia is strongest at is its cautionary tale it's it's moral grounding it's this all these variables have different outcomes look at them learn from them try to improve right. yourself you know that and and how you see your relationships i think that's huge and important and the strongest thing you could say about magnolia is that we can gain we can learn from it because it does explore these themes firmly and well and i you know not only that they're enjoyable to, to view not necessarily uplifting but we connect with them as as a movie you know we we can we can be intrigued and interested in them mm-hmm. it's told visually and narratively very strongly right. it's just the one thread that this is really happening that mm-hmm. connecting thing i think what if that had been taken out you know i mean what if we hadn't put such a focus on it can i posit one thing then sure what if it's happening while you're watching it uh as uh, the experiences of these characters that's that's it's happening to you you're the thread through which it's it's interwoven you're experiencing these things as one thing but to them they're not connected. That's that's a fair concept. I, yeah, I, I like that. I, <laughs> I like the idea. I don't know if it connects. Yes, okay. yes. If as a cautionary tale, the final piece should be that it cautions human beings. So therefore, it is about real people. But then, so is everything. And there, exactly. But then, that's then it's it's a carte blanche for all media and all entertainment and all fiction and all stories forever. Because they're for people, they're good. You know? Not necessarily. I'm th- I'm going from the basis that we start with a narrator and we end with a narrator. Uh, yeah, I no, I get that. I don't. This I don't. Fi- just, like you said, this is a story being told to us, right? It's yeah, being fed to us. This is the chose. This I is the story he chose. I really do like the concept of that. <laughs> I, I like the idea that this is really happening. I don't right. want to lose it, but I right. think it sets up uh, an expectation that it's going to really be both 
a moral cautionary tale and a character story and it doesn't do both it does one incredibly well and it teases another but it doesn't come full circle and right. to me that's again I, I mean it's an endless sort of debate you know I, 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 oh, I definitely, definitely I feel yeah. it we could go on for hours about it but <laughs> and, and definitely will I, I think at some point I think this will come up a bunch of times we'll talk about it but yeah I um that's where my connection to the film was not 100% it was 90% oh definitely I, I get it I completely Completely get it. Yeah, That's well. it. I want to just steer this towards because uh, we did it in the last show. What was the favorite aspect of the movie? Yeah, yeah. And so I'm going to start by saying that one one of the aspects that I enjoyed is how Anderson, um, contrary to Boogie Nights, uh, you don't feel his presence that much. You know, in Boogie Nights, you know, it felt very Scorsese. It felt like you you saw the camera moves, you saw everything going on. He called attention to himself, and I feel that in Magnolia it finds a very a much subtler Anderson. You think? Yeah, I think it's he's much subtler because hmm. when we compare it to what we're going to be talking about next in Punch Drunk Love, he calls attention to himself the entire time. Yes, much like yes. we were talking about Neon Demon, you know, and how Refn calls attention to himself through the entire time. I think that in, in Punch Drunk Love, he does a good job at calling attention to himself, whereas in Magnolia, it's really about the people, like you said, in my opinion, anyway. I th- yeah, I and, think you're right. But I think that, you know, being subtler doesn't mean that there aren't moments that stand out. And I think that my favorite moment is when is the, definitely the long take. The long take when Stanley shows up with his father at the uh, the television rehearsal. Oh, no, actually the television recording. And to me, the camera work in that sequence is just filmmaking profession. It's a tracking shot, essentially, that lasts, uh, I think it's from the 43-minute mark to the 46-minute mark wow. in the movie. <laughs> And all the transitions are done with tracking shots. They show the inner workings of a pre-show preparation for production. And so the camera, it starts, you start by greeting Stanley, who's outside walking in the rain with his father. Mm. And he's walking towards the, the, um, the main entrance. And then a woman meets them and they walk through corridors with the woman who's explaining things to him, leaving Stanley so that they can follow Stanley's father, Rick, who takes us around to where the parents are. And then an assistant hands a coffee to a woman and the camera follows the woman down a few more corridors, which we can't where we catch up with Stanley again, who sure. then takes an elevator, reaches the floor they're going to exit. The elevator crosses a woman who's going to see Jimmy Gator in his office. I thought, you know, that's just fucking genius man i love shit like that that's the kind of thing that i i pay to go see movies so that i can see something that elegantly done and to me that you know you're starting to see just little tidbits of kubrick seep into into his his like (laughs) he's like oh grand spectacle of it all (laughs) he's like oh let me see if i can start you know like the wonderful tracking shots and paths of glory to me when we were going through those those hallways in 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 magnolia i was like oh it's so pretty. It's just waltzing with the camera. You know, you have to plan that. That's three minutes without a cut. Yeah, to, yeah. Like you know, it's everyone has to be it's, it's, it's time beautiful. choreography. Exactly, and to me, that's just beautiful filmmaking. So that would be my favorite sequence. Yeah, because it shows you the underbelly of what production is, and it acts as a metaphor for the film as a whole. Right, we're going right. in here, but this is this is reality, and then we're going to set you up for fiction a little bit later. Right. And so right. I thought that Anderson just kind of giving a little nod to where he comes from as a director you know from tv and you know behind the scenes in television he dabbled in that and i think that 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 slight little nod to how uh, a pre-show preparation is i thought it was just beautiful that's that's a great so, idea that he would take that uh, as a from his own you know experience and stuff i hadn't even considered that kind of element of it but that yeah that's brilliant and it is it's a very effective uh take uh let me think uh well i, I do love the frank's 
recurrence on stage, and I kind of love every single scene with Donnie Smith, uh, who I just oh, yeah. uh, it's the most adorable, sympathetic character I've seen in a long time. I just I, I just wanted to pat him on the back. I wanted to give him a hug, the poor bastard. Uh, oh, definitely. Uh, I think there's this there's this huge middle of the film montage uh, that it, it, it bounces back from like almost uh, as you were saying about this these all these events circling towards a singularity and, and Earl's death right that picks up a pace in this uh, around the center of the film Earl is sort of on his death I think he's trying to get um, trying to get Phil to get a son meanwhile and, oh Phil's on the phone to get Frank but Frank's just wrapping up the interview and it's losing control and he's starting to get more and more aggressive meanwhile stanley is in now already wet his pants and he refuses to get up for the question and uh it's uh, it, this is already after jimmy has fallen so he's back up and he's disoriented and he just doesn't understand why it's all falling apart meanwhile donnie he, he's getting more aggressive with the, the the bar guy that he's with all these things circle around each other I, oh yes and um linda you know she's 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 now like taking the drugs and all. It's uh all this to swelling intense music. It was like it was the it was the film gripping you and you know yelling at you that this was this is Anderson going watch this you know watch how these things right. collapse uh, and I was totally enthralled i i had up to that point i was interested but i was kind of like oh this is gonna be like shortcuts we're gonna go on and on and on and it's not there's not gonna be a, a moment to me you know like there's not gonna be this this happening there's gonna there'll be something akin to an earthquake but there won't be this this big scene that really screams to me you know that where the film all these things are hitting each other right there are elements of it but it never connects for me you know it never really 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 dragged me in and made me watch it but this there was so much tension and how these things were unraveling and just this quick change montage between all these different stories it woke me up you know it, it shook me you know i started and the score is incredible i think it's my favorite part of the film it's it's something i would like to go back and see over and over again just because i want to see more about how he handled it how anderson right. really crafted because the montage is such an overused trope you know it's such a cliche of cinema to get all the all your narrative needs done in such fast time but this is it's used to further the arcs in the same time as they would be on their own it's not about flashing forward through the story you know it's right. about clashing all the same elements that are connecting with other stories at the same time uh and i i, I loved how that fits into the, the entire theme of it all you know this that this is really happening and that this is all connected and that was an incredibly enjoyable moment for me that, and that's great i think that you're absolutely on point with that it's a beautiful beautiful sequence hmm. so i don't know any final thoughts on magnolia or should we move on to punch drunk love dear sir uh yeah i think we said all we realistically have to yeah, say i would exactly. i if you haven't seen it see it i uh, don't expect to love it but uh there'll be something that connects with you on some grander theme and you'll probably like it i think uh repeated viewings i'll i won't connect more to it but i'll appreciate the craft more as time goes on oh yeah i mean like uh, to me I'm, it's not a film that i'm gonna revisit anytime soon i'm glad i got to it i hadn't watched it in a couple of years yeah i was happy to invest a little bit more time on it but now with with this and the discussion that i've had with you i think it's one of those films that i'm gonna have in my collection and and i'll be like 
I when, done. Once you know? I talked, I talked about it with Lee mm. enough. I've, I know the grander themes. You know, I could keep reading on it, but I just don't feel like I need to anymore. Yeah. So I definitely, if you haven't seen it, watch it. But I don't know what you'll get out of it. It is performance mm. driven. It is. I think it's it's a it's another film nerd film. No one like if I recommend this yeah. to my parents, they'll be like, "What was that about? Yeah. You know, why true. are there frogs?" My 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 dad had seen a couple of. Uh, he's he's not a, a, a Paul Thomas Anderson fan but one of the ones he said he did like was magnolia so i mean that's oh really okay yeah so that i was a bit surprised by that because i thought there was there was more to, to like maybe in boogie nights but he thought it was a bit bleak but i thought magnolia was it pretty is. bleak so i mean <laughs> i don't know definitely i think that bleak is probably one of the best ways to describe magnolia there's no real uplifting moment you know, everyone's <laughs> yeah. just everything's so ambiguous you know? exactly yeah you know and everyone just kind of it's just so fucking sad and it's mm. heavy and you know even yeah, if there are yeah. a couple of moments where you can laugh the, the, the laughter becomes something awkward right yeah when yeah breaks the key and you're like so it's, it's all tinged shit. with sadness you know it's it's really yeah. you know it's dark humor in that sense it's like schadenfreude one of the weird things about the movie that i i'll just close on this is uh when um when uh, claudia that last shot of the movie when she looks directly into camera yeah i think that was a funny way of saying this happens you know it's like confirming <laughs> yeah. it's like confirming that yeah you just saw that mm. right and I, i'm yeah. aware that you're there as well you know so i hope you enjoyed the show but this yeah, well, happens yeah. all the time <laughs> right? that is that's and a great so, way of reading that I, I, I like that anyway so yeah i recommend it definitely watch it at least once but it's not it's not something that i consider that you guys should revisit i, I know this what we're saying is going to upset a couple of people but you know what mm. that's okay yeah, it's not whatever. a problem like, whatever. <laughs> that's our take on it so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to uh, we're going to take a break because I need water first yeah, of all yeah. and while I'm having that sip of water here is the trailer for Punch Drunk Love see you in a bit see you in a bit I wanted to ask you something because you're a doctor right yeah I don't like myself sometimes can you help me Mary I'm a dentist Georgia. This is Barry Egan. So what do you do, Barry? I have my own business. Uh, we have a non-breakable handle. Let me demonstrate for you. You're married, aren't you? No. Barry, it's your sister. There's this friend of mine from work, and I want you to meet her. This is Lena. Hi. Hi. Do you have a girlfriend? No. It must be weird for you to have so many sisters. Actually, no, it's very nice. All Remember right. we used to call you gay boy and get all mad? What's that? We were calling you gay boy and you got so mad. I saw your picture and I really wanted to meet you. Ha, ha, ha. you lying? No. I didn't want to get too far along on going out and be hiding something. This is Barry. Hey, it's Georgia. How did you get this number? I was wondering if maybe you could help me out with some money. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. You've just made a war for yourself that you can't afford. I'm going to Hawaii on Friday. Hawaii? I was thinking about going there. Really? I'm going to start a collection of puddings and coupons that can be redeemed for freaking flyer miles. That's insane. This is Barry. You canceled your credit card. That's a bunch of bull! Get your supervisor on the phone! Yeah. What's your name, sir? You're sick. No, no, no. Shut up! Shut up! Shut, 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 shut up! Are you threatening me? Yes. That wasn't good! You're dead! Oh, oh. And all at once I knew I knew I knew 
have so much strength in me, you have no idea. I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed the trailer for Punch Drunk Love, which happens to be Paul Thomas Anderson's fourth film out of a seven film filmography (laughs) so far. He takes his time and I appreciate the fact that he does take his time. I am glad this list isn't too long because if we can complete one retrospective, we can complete every retrospective. (laughs) I remember because when I sent you, I said, hey, do you want to do a Martin Scorsese retrospective? Yeah, like what, 30 30 films films or something? (laughs) You're like, Jesus, man, that's way too long. I was like, okay, how about PTA? And you're like, oh, that'd be good. I like doing that. That'd be great. Mm. All right. So Punch Drunk Love stars Adam Sandler, Emily Watson. Uh, and who's the other? Philip Seymour Hoffman is in it as well, playing a dirtbag, yep. which is great. And um, Lu- Louise Guzman. Uh, that's right. Louise Guzman is in it. I love him. He's great. He's great <laughs> at everything. He just plays himself. You know, yeah, yeah. I think Michael Pena might actually become the new Luis Guzman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Magnolia actually does play himself. That's that's how circular that becomes. <laughs> oh, definitely. That's it. And so, what is the roundabout story of Punch Drunk Love? Is it boy meets girl? Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> it's it's always a little iffier than that. But yeah, general concept, Punch Drunk Love is Adam Sandler is a guy. He comes from a family of a lot of sisters. And he... Seven uh, sisters, yeah. Seven sisters. And he's grown. He's had this sort of pushy upbringing. And at uh, the moment, he's trying to basically run his own business. When he meets uh, a girl who, by chance, leaving her car off in the car park just outside the business. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of gets caught into a little uh, love affair that also happens to be pushed on and forwarded by a conflicting series of events when he calls a sex line and uh the story spins on from there but that's that's a gist that's that's been it's not it's not the most deep story in the world it's not supposed to be so no that's exactly, exactly it. to me it's it's a it's not even specifically a character study as much as it is a study in themes i guess mm. i think that you know they embody you know those things i, th- I know that you're going to be talking about something really interesting because it's not something i picked up sure. on, and i'm looking forward to what your take is but overall did you like the film um i would say it's my favorite paul thomas anderson films <laughs> so far um, it makes sense it makes sense. It makes i mean sense. like not just i'm i'm not a, a total sap for fucking conciseness and commercial you know it, it's his commercial film as such uh, he clearly went out of his way to make something that would play in, in, in theaters and he got the most, I don't know, the most romantic comedy related actor of that time to be in a romantic comedy. You know, I mean, he, he's clearly trying to invert a lot of, if he's not trying to save Adam Sandler's career, I mean, at this point, I mean, I don't know what else he was trying to do. But um, yeah, I, I, I loved it. I thought start to finish, I could watch this any fucking day. I, um, I, I don't think I needed to, be, I, I don't think I need to be in a mood to watch Punch Drunk Love. I think the performances are wonderful. I thought the themes were great. I thought the the jabs of the artist behind the camera, uh, that is Anderson, really elevated. And I, I just loved basically every minute of it. I thought it was just a great story. I agree. I think it's a really fine film. I don't think I liked it the first time I watched it because I didn't understand much of what was going on. I thought... Right. Like when I watched it, I thought Anderson was just trying shit out. Sure, yeah, and to an extent, I think that's that's true. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, to me, it looked like an experimental film compared to what he had been doing. It before. was a challenge. It had to be right. You know, it had to be like his yeah. commercial challenge. I can make commercial films. Uh, but that's it. I don't think that Punch Drunk Love is a commercial film at all. It's not though. That's that's I true. Think it's one of his least accessible films. Strangely enough, 
And yeah. it's one of those things where I think when um, I, I think the example that I could give you is, you know, a snow globe where everything has kind of settled. Everyone has watched the first three movies and they're like, wow, look at what this guy can do. He can really craft a complex, yeah. really, you know, interesting story about multiple characters and then, you know, everything looks really great. And then he basically what he said is like, I don't like that. I don't like that. People have that opinion of me. Yeah. I pick, picks up the snow globe, shakes it up a little bit, puts it back down and then say, throws that out into the world and says, what do you guys make of this one? You know, so I think that Potronk Love was Paul Thomas Anderson just redefining a little bit of what yeah. he could do as a filmmaker. Absolutely. I'm, and I'm totally on board with that. I like seeing I like seeing what he does with each little twist on his own formulas and his own influences each time. So yeah. uh, I, that's that's what's exciting about him. We're not we never we've not seen the same film twice. That's that's really impressive. You know, I, you know, you see Scorsese films. Some of them are kind of like reboots and remakes of the stuff he's already made, you know, yeah. uh, to a certain extent. You know, obviously each film is individual and in what it tries to go for, but there's a lot in common with a lot of his movies that... Yeah, you're not pissing me off. At no, no, that. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've yet to experience it with Anderson. I've yet to I've yet to really feel like he's been backed into a corner at any point. It feels like he... It always feels like he's just getting started, which is great. Oh, definitely. And I mean, you're going to see with There Will Be Blood, The Master, and Inherent Vice, it, it just gets weirder. And Excellent. Excellent. I think it just gets. I think that Anderson has hit his stride with Punch Drunk Love, although it might have been a bit of a, a strange start. I think that this is like a, a graduate project where he's like, you know what, I'm going to try everything. I'm going to throw everything at the wall, you know, and I'm going to have I get a that. fun I get fucking that. time. This is my yeah. artistic piece. This is where I'm like, I haven't had a chance to make a student film. This is the one I'm making now. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You know, you're right because to me, like Punch Drunk Love is deconstruction of a hybrid romantic comedy coming-of-age story. Sure. I think that contrary to Magnolia, as I was saying earlier, Anderson definitely calls attention to his presence, you know, his craft, mm. through the use of camera work, framing, the use of lenses and lens flare and sound design. Transitions of colorful transitions with exactly, just music. I mean, you know, yeah, it's a lot of the craft stuff. <laughs> exactly. Not as much emphasis to me is put on the characters, although they are very, very present. I mm. think that Anderson was saying, I make a movie for me. If you guys want to watch, that's fine. Okay? Just go yeah, ahead and yeah. watch the movie. But I really think that this is one of this, his first... I'd say this is his goodbye to Altman, his hello to Kubrick. In sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know. What aspect did you prefer about the film? Let's get into it. Let's get right into it right now. Uh, I, I guess like the thing that I, I, I loved the most, it's something I kind of picked up on, but I... I'm, you know, I didn't, you know, it's, it's not something I've really, you know, corroborated enough to say like, yeah, this is definitely what he was going for or anything like that. But what I got right. from it, to me, this was like a send up of like the classic romance films of like the 1940s and 1950s. Oh, nice. uh, yeah, yeah. Like all the classic tropes are there. Even with, I mean, right. obviously you're, you know, you're looking at fucking Casablanca. It's like the big mm -hmm. granddaddy of how to tell a, you know, romance war story thing. That's maybe, I, I think that's maybe a little too much. I'm talking about the general fair stuff, you know. I, I mean, like the, the crap you see on PCM <laughs> every old afternoon. Yeah, but I like these, these tropes, these great romantic tropes, the love against all odds, the romantic gestures, the dark secrets that the, the man, the man holds and his sort of interpretation of masculinity that um, the world are against us that kind of quaint romantic notion honor and pride and the man you know like that kind of stuff I think that's those themes are really prevalent here but what's great is that Anderson inverts them and updates them to an extent we are given more of a, a character understanding of what as far as I can tell 
This is him trying to make it's like a realism take on okay. those films. It's 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 like trying to justify logically how would a human being have to be in real life for this story to happen? For these big beats, you know, the falling in love and getting away from it all, but also the conflicts that affect them and the conflicts that they have between each other. How could that happen in a real life-ish scenario? You know, and obviously the film's a little more over the top than it. You know, it's still Hollywood. You know, it's definitely, you know, it loves its its send up a little closer than just realism. But I think from a character's perspective, we're given a lot more grounding as to why these two fall in love. And okay. It feels, I guess, if you're if you're trying to, it's something of a leap for them. You know, if you're trying to understand why these two come together, you're looking at them and you're going, I don't get these two. I don't get why they've, that's why I understand what you mean by it's inaccessible for most people is that, yes, I agree. These are weird, strange characters and their, their love for each other is even stranger. (laughs) But that's, that's what's fascinating because it's that straight. You would have to be these people to have an old Hollywood style romance. You know, okay. you would have to be Adam Sandler's character. He's emotionally pent up. He's isolated. He's an introvert. He uh, he's not much experience with the real world. He's had a rough upraising because he's been teased and made fun of all his childhood and and entire life by these these sisters that constantly you know try to define who he is and why he's weird and you know it, it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy to to an extent. They think he's weird, so he becomes weird. That's That makes sense entirely to me. And following that into where that character would fall in love, it could only be something alien like the old style of romances because that's not how real life worked. You know, people right. didn't just... There was no love at first sight, you know? That's not real. It might Some people might have an experience similar to it, but it's not love, you know? It's, you know, attraction or, or something. You know, it's you can't love at first sight. It's just not possible, but Hollywood made it possible. Right. Uh, here we get that, you know? She... The, the character of Lena... Yeah, Lena Leonard. Lena Leonard. She totally falls from him at first sight. She's yeah. not only attracted to him, but absolutely fascinated by him in every facet and to do that she has to be functioning as a weird person herself you know she has to be not like everybody else so that's why she's kind of ditzy she's kind of uh, attracted to strange behavior she lets she brushes off huge faux pas like they're nothing because she thinks they're cute that's a person that has their own story you know that has their own reasons for where they come on a developmental level why they can look past these things and never get offended. And then we go into ideas like the escape to uh, Hawaii, uh, this romantic retreat, and how that, if you actually look at it, this isn't, from the perspective of Adam Sandler's character, this is not a retreat at all. It is a retreat, but it's an escape, you know. He's getting away from the pressures of the, the, the plot of the sex line guys who are following him up, you know. He wants to make sure they can't find him. But to her, she sees this grand sweeping gesture. She, He's come to Hawaii to be with her. No, he hasn't. He's come to Hawaii to be with himself, to get away. And it just so happens she's there. The romance... I think she's the motivation he needs to leave. I, I Well, yes, I, I agree. He he would have never gone there on his own. Yes, but he's more self-motivated than he is infatuated with her, you know. Really? He, you think so? I that's what I mean. It's it's an inversion of the of the romance tropes because that 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 man that's hard to get, the old classic hard-boiled character mm-hmm. that was such a trope of of the men of that time that they're they're stronger, they're more proud. The woman has to do the effort, you know. 
yeah. that that's that old-fashioned notion where it's not like an equal opportunity game. That play that's such a weird inversion that 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 this is he is there for her to an extent. I agree that you know he wouldn't go to Hawaii of all places if she wasn't she hadn't brought it up. But at the same time, he's not there to immediately start a romance or anything. He just it, it happens to become a secondary motivation for him. The real reason he's there is because he's living his lie. You know, he's trying to get away with the sex line thing that he did, and okay. he doesn't want to admit to it. So it's these big sweeping things. These all these old tropes all kind of clash together, and by the end, we've got like him coming to terms with his own pride, and it, instead of being like fighting for her honor, he's fighting because he is past his breaking point. He thinks it's it is love that motivates him to this complete another like unstoppable degree where he beats these these hillbillies up. Oh, takes yeah, the yeah. Uh, takes the fight to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Yeah, you know? it's like a boss in a video game. <laughs> yeah, it's the the notion behind it. This it's it's a stand up of the old like fight for the honor of of the one you love and protect them. That kind of old fashioned notion that was always in these old romantic films, but see how it's twisted you know it's it's really strange uh, it's really more about defending his lie and and, and 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 facing up to his interior decisions that he's made you know finally standing up for himself finally amounting to something in his eyes it's it's a modern take on a man it's it's not about honor it's actually about embracing what you've done and that's why when he's got through it all he's beat them up he admits he was on a sex line to him that's him coming clean he admits I called a sex line, that's why you got went to the hospital, you know, basically. And there's all these little tiny callbacks, these the the sit around the piano, they always used to love that with the wartimey films, that they they'd have a connection over music. Uh and even like the the company that he works in, when he goes and runs out to her, everybody follows, like this big everybody, like Louise Guzman and the guys, they all follow, and you always seen that, you know, like everybody's invested in the romance of the of the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties. Every all the side characters make it their personal interest to be on the side of the romance, you know? They're always like, we want to right. see this happen, and everybody gets involved. And to see all the guys rushing out behind him to kind of, to check on him, the twist is they're, they're making sure he's okay. But at the same time, it's it's a little, you know, it's, it's, it's a flip, it's a reversal of that. It's a modern retelling of old classic romance. How can they make this work? And... It's it's flawed, sure. It's uh, it's uh, it's definitely got holes in it. But then I don't know. There's something so saccharine and sweet about it that I genuinely bought their romance by the end, and it totally won me over. You know, maybe the, you know, maybe not the most lasting kind of love. But if anybody was going to make this Hollywood romance work, it would be these two oddballs. <laughs> okay, I, I'll go with you along with this. Okay? Sure. Uh, although I do have a different take. I don't think it is about him. I think that the story is about him. I think, sure. like I said in the, in the in the early stages when we were talking about it just a couple of minutes ago, I did think that it was a coming of age story. Therefore, it is about him to to that point. Yeah. You know. But I think the reason why he leaves it's not because he's trying to get away. I understand because he's trying to cover up for his lie. I do think that the courage that he gains from her. Mm -hmm. okay is the motivation he needs to leave he's taking that time off in order to kind of relax in order to kind of maybe suck in some more of 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 the aura that she's giving off onto him because it empowers him to change to do those things and the way that i came to this conclusion is through the analysis of colors that anderson uses in the film yeah right but and before i get to the colors i have to kind of dissect just the opening shot of the movie okay. in order for us to get the 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 how can i put it? how how anderson stages 
Barry Egan as a character and what he needs to do to travel through this coming of age story. Because to me, the, 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 the film is about traveling. It's traveling from one point to another, right? There is a mm. lot of emphasis on movement throughout the movie. You know, we see Barry run quite a bit throughout the movie. He runs with the harmonium to bring it in. And then he runs back out to see something else. And then we see him running away from the thugs. We see him running trying to find where she is, what apartment he left, you know? And even at the end of the movie, mm. he when he's running into... You know, there's a lot of emphasis on traveling. And the reason why I kind of picked up on that is because when they're actually talking at the end of their date, there's this big fucking truck that, roll, that rolls right past them. And on the truck, I had to freeze the frame in order to read. It's written relocation at its best. And so I... That's right. Yeah, yeah. I think that that little thing where anderson uses because he uses the truck a couple of times in the movie so he's pointing to mm. us as like look at the truck we want i need, yeah, yeah i want you yeah. to look at the truck move <laughs> exactly and so recall relocation at his best it's it's the best way possible to get barry egan from one place to another place we want to get him from who he is to who he wants to be and i think that that encapsulates the right. movie as a whole and it starts off with that first wonderful fucking shot and the shot does tell us quite a bit about Barry. Uh, the first shot uses a two-point perspective, framing Barry at the far end of the warehouse sitting at his desk, screen left, in deep focus. So we have everything mm. that's in focus. We have Barry Egan at the end of one place. And that using the two-point perspective, when you look at it, you're like, okay, if we're having two points, he's telling us with that first frame, we have to get from here to there. We have to get from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen. So it's basically sure. the traveling imagery is there. To me, the shot is one of the most gorgeous I've ever seen in the film because I had never seen a film open that way before. I was like, what the fuck? I was just staring yeah. at it the first time I saw it. And I was like, that is so odd. What the hell is going on? But you have those divisions also in the colors, right? The blue on top, the white up there. And it's also reflected on his suit, which we'll talk about. But the shot itself gives you everything you need to know about the character in one single frame using a binary that'll explore Barry's polarity throughout the film. The polarity right. I'm talking about is his calm demeanor versus his anger. You know, mm -hmm. you'll have uh, his is not being able to stand up for himself to the end of the movie where he's like, I thought I told you to. And then he's <laughs> the mattress king, you know, Dean Trumbull, yeah. who just decides. To, yep, that's that. You know, and he just walks away, you know. So you have the, these 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 very big polar opposites when it comes to this character. There's no nuance. He's either one mm -hmm. thing or the other. And you can see a buildup, right? You can see he's holding it in. And then after that, it becomes explosive. And I thought that what you were talking about in terms of how, uh, you know, she, she, um, the story is more about him. I, I, I agree with that. But I also think it's the story of how he's affected by Lena. Yeah, right. Right. And so what I wanted to get into with regards to the first shot is also how Anderson plays with the symbolism uh, popular culture has come to attribute to specific colors, objects, right, okay. imagery, and themes. Cool. And I think it's a bit weird that a lot of the attention has been given to his suit and how it represents, like, I don't know, classic notions of, I think it was what I read. Uh, I remember reading this when it came out. It was like people thought he was depressed and they yeah. thought that it, it symbolized isolation. Now, the isolation I get, but I don't think the isolation is in the suit. It's in the framing that, mm. that, uh, that Sanderson's using. Like, if you put him in the far left side of the screen, he's alone with a desk yeah. on a phone. There's no one there. He is yeah, isolated. you're just seeing space. Space encompasses the frame, you right. know. That exactly. just makes sense. 
And that's kind of reinforced a little bit later when he has the sex, the phone sex line conversation where the camera itself is positioned in a way where Egan is again far left and we don't see the dinner table. We see the rest of his apartment, but he is really on the far left hand side of the screen. Mm. And when Georgia says basically that she's going to call back and then there's that little pan left where they reveal the table that is set for another person and we're waiting for the call back like he's going to be accompanied and therefore the loneliness and isolation might be lifted somewhere. Yeah. Right. The suit itself, I I know, I was like, okay, but I think that, okay, how could I put it? I think the suit itself is essentially what Barry wants to embody as he matures emotionally through the film. Right, definitely. And I think it's him getting a crack, like a grasp on, I don't know, maybe some sort of inner peace, some calm, some mm. sort of tranquility inside where he can actually live for himself and not constantly be haunted by his his his, um, his sisters and you know yeah and so yeah. i think that his quest throughout the film strangely enough is to become a reflection of the suit's color right right yeah yeah right and i think that if we look at it very carefully because of the suit the suit is never changing he only changes it once and he's wearing a robe inside the hotel room we're going to get that later the person because of the suit the person he become the person um the person he wants to become Mm -hmm. stays the same embodied by the suit but the person he is changes by the end of the film Definitely. But the change itself doesn't come from the suit. It comes from the tie that he's wearing. Right. And I thought that the tie that Barry is wearing throughout the movie really, really, uh, how can I put it? Shows us the emotional evolution that he has throughout the movie. The first tie that Barry is wearing, and I looked up this on a tie, on a tie website that that explains what what ties are wow. supposed to be significant of the, the, the real low end of research here folks exactly. <laughs> I went on and I was like, here's another crackpot theory <laughs> and so i went on and i called one of my friends and i was like hey you wear ties for work i don't can you explain to me a little bit about that so i did a little bit of research I called one of my friends i looked up online what ties what 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 kind of significance come from ties and i think that what anderson did was basically hide Barry's emotional evolution under our noses, not through the suit and the other colors that he's using in pink and reds and stuff like that. But Barry's evolution is through the tie. And right. and the first tie he wears in the movie is blue. Same color as the suit, right? So we, we haven't right, necessarily yeah. moved from one place. Now, blue in popular culture, like I said earlier, has been associated to depression. However, if you look at how it's interpreted in literature and in advertising, blue tends to be associated with peace, calm, confidence, and stability. So if ever a businessman was to walk into a meeting that he knows is potentially hostile, he might want to wear a blue tie in order to signal like it's it's a it's a yeah I'm coming yeah. here and I'm trying to dissuade everyone from getting all up at arms. Right. And it also says that from the research that I did, blue is a cold color that businessmen wouldn't normally wear and it's also becomes what they call an appetite suppressor, which kind of funny because he doesn't open any of the pudding. So <laughs> good point. <laughs> now, I think that if we look at the ties and we can interpret those ties it's going to be a very pleasant one. So the, for the first part, when he meets Lena for the first time, she's wearing a pink dress. Okay, so pink, you know, you're going to have that that innocence that comes with pink. You're going to have a very, uh, it's not necessarily love. It, we would say that it is lovely that would come with the, her pink dress. And, you know, he has sure. his blue tie and he comes off as someone who's cold, right? Then he has mm-hmm. his phone sex conversation after that. And the day after, the tie he's wearing is yellow. 
Right. Which is kind of fun because yellow in a business context, because he's a businessman, would normally signal vitality or someone who's outgoing, which is completely against who Barry is as a character. Right. The same yeah. with the blue tie, who's supposed to be calm, but we know that Barry has anger issues. Mm -hmm. Right. So he shouldn't be wearing blue because it wouldn't come off as something like that. So he's trying again to embody something that he's not. Now, in popular literature, yellow, even if you look at Westerns, they used to call them yellow belly bastards. You know, like they say <laughs> in Back to the Future Part 3, when you called someone yellow as someone who, who's essentially a coward, someone yeah. who could get yeah, sick, definitely. he's weak. Right. And I think that Anderson was using that popular notion because the first time we see the yellow tie is when Georgia calls the next day and tries to extract more money from him. Yeah, yeah. And then Barry is on the phone and the camera is moving forward hmm. through the hall, trying to come in and he's backing away from the camera. So you have this want to avoid confrontation from Barry's part. So the yellow tie kind of goes into how he's not necessarily a coward, but he's scared of the outcome. He wasn't expecting this. He's being imposed something on him the same way his sisters would, but he doesn't necessarily want to go forward with the confrontation. Yeah. And once he goes to work, this is the second time that Lena shows up. Now, Lena shows up the second time and she's wearing a purple dress. But this is the first time she really leaves an impression on Barry because she asks him out and he doesn't know what he should do. That's right. Yeah. And that's when you mentioned earlier with the guys that are following. <laughs> yeah. Him yeah. They'll be nosy. It's like, you know what? I'll, I'll go with you. I'll, I'll take you on that date. I really wish that I want to do that. So this is the first time that we notice that she has had an impact on him. Yeah. Where he's actually going against what he would normally do. Yeah, exactly. Now, fast forward just a little bit, just for fun. We're at the restaurant. We're sitting at the table. She is now wearing a red dress. And he is now wearing a purple tie, right. matching the previous dress that she had on. That communicates that she has had an impact on him. Right, yes. Now, purple purple in this case usually means enlightened. Hmm. So if she walks in after meeting him for the first time, having talked to Barry's sister, uh, who's played by Chloe from 24, um, she essentially is feeling enlightened having met him. Yeah. But then Barry, in accepting to go with her, she has taken a load off him because she has demonstrated an acceptance of who he is as an individual and a want to get to know him, which is even more fun for him. Yeah, yeah. Now, the red dress obviously has another impact on him because usually red can be associated to passion, but it can also be anger. Now, Anderson's playing with that because... As we know, in the restaurant, when she mentions that his sister, uh, when she mentions that his sister has told uh, him something, I don't remember what it was uh, that she said, but it really sparked something. And he says it's a lie. Yeah. He then goes into the bathroom and just tears it to shit. That's right. Now, what happens, though, after that is, like I said, the traveling that we were talking about. He decides to go to Hawaii. Yes, he's being threatened. Yes, he's been doing that. Uh, he's been hunted by these guys. He's got his ass kicked a little bit by the bigger guy. And while I do accept what you said in terms of he's doing it for himself, I, I would just kind of want to extend that to he's doing it for himself, but also because of the strength that she's slowly starting to give him. Oh, yeah. You know, the emotional attachment that he has towards her is becoming more of an expression of how he is able to cope with his anger issues and make decisions for himself. And be kind of a little bit more confident in the decisions that he's making. No, you're totally right. And so if we fast forward just a little bit longer, the final tie that Barry wears 
Okay. The first time he, I'll, I'll do this first in the hotel room is the first time he takes off the suit. It's the first time that he would technically be naked. He is presenting himself to her after they've had sex. He's no longer with the suit. He's wearing white. White is usually symbolic of peace, which is incidentally what she is wearing when she meets him in Hawaii. She's dressed all in white. Right. She's supposed to be getting off like we're on vacation. This is supposed to be peaceful. It's going to be something like that. Now, again, he changes colors based on the fact that she has changed his colors before him. Mm -hmm. Not to mention that the fact that the red dress is still playing on him. Because if we go again, like I said, with the notion of the tie, the last tie he wears in the film is red. And the red is usually symbolic of something that's gives off strength according to what the business guy i talked to yeah, about yeah. was telling me he says that's why donald trump wore it during the entire campaign you know it's like this power and strength you know it's power it also yeah, involves yeah. passion and love and all those things and rage and rage and so i think that through the evolution of barry's tie we can see how he goes from someone who's wants to be calm cool and whatnot but then he actually embodies that rage but with a confidence that she's given him yeah, and at yeah. the end, when he goes with that red tie to confront Dean Trumbell, and he's beating the shit out of those guys in the street as well, he has actually been able to conquer whatever he was feeling, that this, this stress that he had, this inner turmoil, and it's all because of her, all of because of the impact that she's left on him, and he's expressed mm. it through his tie. He's been doing it through his tie. So yeah, I don't yeah. say, I'm not saying, I, I really appreciate your take on it but i want to push it just a little bit farther with regards to how much of an impact she has had on him and it's also through the evolution of barry's tie throughout the movie i um uh, i uh i think that's perfectly fair i think um I, I i don't i don't want to i didn't want to overstate the fact that uh, the impact she does obviously she says is driving motivation so that makes perfect sense but i love how that how it plays into the into the it's such a strange concept like uh, to me it's such an alien idea to to express it for like such a such a small factor but it it it, it sound logic I mean it makes sense could easily be actively decided I I I would I would find it strange if they didn't now you know do that with the ties but it's another good old Jason crackpot theory. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I had fun because when I was watching it again, I was like, "Look at that! No color changes except his fucking tie." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. So I mean, there is a conscious choice that goes through that. There can't be, you know. And like I said, if it's him traveling, you know, amassing these frequent flyer miles to travel from one point to another, there is an emphasis on movement throughout the movie. And I think that the movement is really indicated by where he wants to be, according to how he feels for her. Great. That's it. Makes perfect sense to me. Uh, cool. So, shall we talk um, favorite favorite scene, favorite part of the film? The opening shot. I described it myself. Yeah. I think the opening shot was great. I also loved the uh, sequence where he's running through the hallways. Oh, right? there's, yeah. a, there, there's an emphasis on how narrow things are for him, you mm -hmm. know, again, embodied through the tie, you know, trapped between this this jacket on a white shirt. You know, you, you have that image where it is a narrow hallway. You know, the tie is something very narrow that you wear around your neck. And I think that him running through the hallway, one of the most brilliant sequences I thought was, is that he's running in the opposite direction of the exit sign. Which is yes, like, I yes. don't want out, I don't want out, I don't want I don't out. Want to, I don't want like, to escape this time, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. And then he runs down the stairs, but then he he sees the exit. He decides that maybe he should try to escape, but then there's yeah. the blaring alarm that comes on. And so he's like, fuck this. He closes the door and he runs back up the stairs. And I thought that <laughs> very interesting way of showing uh, 
the the anguish that he's feeling yeah. at this moment the inner yeah the the inner the inner choices he's making it's being personified through the, through the location through the action and through the the image of the exit sign that, that makes perfect sense it's, that's a great decision yeah and so a great great scene i love that scene very very much also the confrontation at the end when uh, you know philip seymour hoffman again is, is brilliant in the fucking movie Absolutely. he's just a, a dirtbag and he plays it so Unbelievable. well and again like if you're looking at the imagery what people are wearing you know uh Philip Seymour Hoffman's wearing a, a captain's suit, you know, a, a mm. coat, but it looks like he's got it from a flea market. You know, he's got the gold little things on the side, but the shirt that he's wearing underneath is striped, you know, and striped are usually associated to prison or jail or something like that. So you have the idea that maybe he's involved in some sort of criminal activity, things that are yeah, a little yeah. shady. You know, there are different shades of the same color on his shirt. So I thought that was a pleasant addition to that. And, you know, the confrontation at the end, you know, the fact that uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is getting his hair cut and the the um uh, what do I what do they call it that 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 frock that they wear in order for so that the hair doesn't fall on it right he okay, lifts yeah. it up at I'm one, not sure if that's the name <laughs> well it's, it's just a little drape that they put on you know to to to, to yeah, keep the yeah, hair from yeah. falling on people you don't see it it's entirely black it's entirely black but then he lifts up his finger at one point as if to flip him off and you can't see it but then the light shines on it and it's just like a snake skin so you're like oh the motherfucker's a snake too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of a cool fucking thing to do yeah, to, to what just a good, like oh he's a snaky motherfucker stupid little touch brilliant <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, think I mean, that was cool. The harmonium of obviously all that stuff is great. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I, I love the little the impressions that Anderson makes in this. I love that there's something of an activator with the with the color changing palette, the art thing. I have no idea what oh, that yeah. is, but they, they sort of divided the narrative really neatly, and I I, I I I kind of appreciated that. That it kind of was sort of such a bizarre take on a segue. I, I can't really wrap my head around it, but I mean if. If there's more to the color element of this, which I haven't thought about, then there's probably a lot to read there, almost certainly. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's in part, I don't remember who the artist's name is. And I know it's an artist that Anderson respects and how Anderson, you know, uses the blues and pinks and whites uh, in his lens flares to accentuate the emotions that these people are going through. At yeah, the yeah, time. sure. And their perception of, 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 of how they see each other. You know, even in the first time that they meet, you know, Barry is outside. He's wearing his blue suit, and the first time we see the reflection of the sun before he he sees the car crash, you know, we'll, we'll have those blue reflections through the lens flare. And when Lena shows up, it, it's kind of funny because there's a reflection. The lens flare is there, and it's all pink, but she's standing kind of right in front of the sun, so the the, the halo around her head is like this angelic person that's yeah. showing up. And we're kind of getting a feeling as to how Barry sees her from the get go, which is fun. You're right. You know, so yeah, I think the color palette definitely is something that that he worked on i don't remember the artist i wish i did uh, yeah but i'm yeah. not gonna look it up right now i'm just gonna come off as someone who's like oh look i know this shit but no i don't i don't know <laughs> so but yeah he did work with an artist and, and i'm positive that i don't know if there's some hypnosis in that shit but anyway oh it's great it looks great <laughs> i know i i like that um that's sort of the fade technique is how they used you know they used to do title cards in old films so i kind of think that kind of plays oh, in yeah, neatly man. with the old like the old film connection oh definitely that's a great connection you made because i i hadn't made that at all 
yeah, well, that connection. I was looking at it as a student film, like you said, an experimental film, but you actually nailed it right there with the 40s and 50s, though. It makes sense. <laughs> of course, the, the last confrontation, uh, easily one of my favorites. It's it's fucking hilarious from start to finish. I just laughed the entire time. It is a comedy. It's it's actually funny. I mean, it's it's oh, yeah, yeah. it's his take on it's Anderson's take on comedy, which is again tinged with sort of sadness and anger. I really like what I I, I like those that's that kind of decision. I. I think my favorite element. I just loved Adam Sandler's performance. I think I, I like. Look, I'm not. I've not seen a lot of Adam Sandler films. Realistically, I just knew I've seen enough to go. Yeah, he's not my thing. Whatever. I'll I'll probably see more as time goes on. But we all know who he is you these days. Don't and, have to. Yeah. No. It's exactly. I'm not going to go out of my way to suffer for no reason. But my God, like it was. It wasn't Adam Sandler. You know, it was a character. It was Barry. Yep. You know. Yep, and yep. you can't give a higher price than that. He, he totally disappeared for me. I, I I didn't see him at all. Even his own tropes, that sort of quick to anger guy that he that was he was famous for uh, in his early career. You know that he would jump straight. He was he played these characters that loved to shout and get absolutely furious. Yeah, that they took that you know little you know trope that was all Sandler's, and then they he he played it so subdued. You know the rage was totally you know when it bursts it burst, but he wasn't screaming or yelling. He just beat shit in he did it all yep. quietly it was just pure unbridled rage and even the scene where he fucking kicks in the windows or tears at the bathroom they're they're perfect the cinematography gets it nails it it's really biting right so I, it's a lot to do with the direction of how they handled the character you're right with the loneliness and i love the idea that the spaces where he travels to in shot mm-hmm. i think that's fantastic uh so obviously there's more at play here than just a performance there always is but at the same time, I, fi- I think he brought so much to that character that I don't, I can't imagine anybody else doing it the justice it, it, it deserves. You know, I can't imagine anybody else as Barry. Oh, well, that's yeah. Wholly impressed. No, he was great, and I mean, it, it led to other roles after that. You know, where he was actually doing something a little bit more serious. Yeah, so a movie like Punch Drunk Love made him kind of want to go into more dramatic roles. You know, he followed that up not too long after that with a movie called Spanglish. Uh, mm. where he plays a chef and then he went on to uh, be in Rain Over Me with uh, Don Cheadle oh, yeah. where he's, he's he's a little bit more serious. It's a guy who's suffered a traumatic event. You know, his family died as a result of 9-11. You know, and even in Funny People, although it's a, it's, a, it's, it's an analysis of how stand-up comedians uh uh, come to to uh, to flourish eventually, you know, and how even at the top, maybe there isn't that much to, to, to get. Mm, he's essentially right. playing he's essentially playing himself in funny people and a lot of people don't like that movie and i remember talking about this with maddie neggs when i was on for sausage party we were talking about like you know uh seth rogan performances uh, and i i i threw funny people in there because i thought that uh, rogan was great but adam sandler was brilliant in that movie as well right right and i don't think that movie gets enough praise i i i think it's a tremendous film i love it right but that's it yeah so it did give people a different appreciation i suppose yeah, yeah i think so yeah and i think that in my in my opinion he should kind of start heading back down that way yeah yeah up, definitely like, grown-ups I mean, is definitely not doing it for I, him anymore <laughs> yeah i mean i'm totally i blew me away this performance from him so i mean i would love to see him take on more challenging roles like this again that's he's clearly an actor you know this is the first time i've seen him as a clear actor so that's yeah but generally final thoughts what do you think punch drug love would you recommend it to people <laughs> um i can't yeah it's a hard recommendation i can't because well it, it's a film i mean i i don't think audiences want this anymore i don't think audiences they want they want things that are easy 
and I'm not bashing on the audience or anything. I'm just saying that I think that a movie like this that actually does explore what what romance can be, as as awkward as romance can be, yeah, mm-hmm. in this particular way and how complicated it can uh, become. And seeing these two characters that are characters that they're not necessarily unattractive, but they're not usually the people you would see in a romantic comedy. Yeah, they're not Hollywood process kind of stuff. Exactly. You know, so I think that for just for that reason alone, a lot of people might be turned off by, by this kind of picture. It was like, really, these people are going to fall in love. Why would I watch them? Mm. You know, it doesn't seem like it's supposed to be no matter how real it it is, because that, that to me, even if the the concept, the way the movie's made feels artificial, the genuine emotion these people feel is real. Yeah. I like it. And this is something that you see every day. You just don't see it this way, you know? So Mm -hmm. because of the manufactured romance that you were talking about earlier in terms of how people would, would, would choose to, to express love like you said earlier this isn't the normal way hollywood's formula is designed to be done and right. i think anderson is just saying you know what fuck it this is the way i see it sure yeah that makes sense this is, That's... you know so as much as you think that magnolia is trying to uh pull on that thread that says this happens mm. i think that punch drunk love in actuality does happen yeah no no i yeah i agree i agree that's um that's something i I do love about the film i I think you said earlier that uh as a character study it wasn't your you didn't see it as a character study you don't you said and uh i i would kind of disagree i do see it as a character study i uh i believe these characters i believe their relationship uh it's it's a very abstract relationship it's a very abstract film uh but i i totally bought that these were you know as, as eccentric as they were, these were human beings, and as pointed as and, and concise as the narrative was, maybe too concise. Uh, it was it it did give us the right amount of time off the story for, to let right. them have little moments of their own, little flourishes in conversation, little bits of the quirks in in their day to day. That kind of stuff that made it seem real to me, uh, and that it kind of ties in with the with this stand up. Uh, that I kind of read in from it, and that uh, it's got this clear artistry behind the, these notions. Uh, that Anderson's bringing some experimentation to a genre. Yeah, to me, that's uh, that's fascinating, and I think there's lots to be fascinated by in this pretty straightforward. I, if you take out all the ifs and buts, uh, ifs and buts, <laughs> if you take out all the ifs and buts, this there's it's pretty straightforward narrative. Oh yeah, but uh, you're right. It's hard to recommend. Uh, I don't think a lot of people will get connected to it like I was. I don't think they'll see the sort of unbridled positivity in these two getting together that I kind of got from it. Uh, I, I maybe I don't know. Maybe it's, it's it speaks to me more personally. I I like to see you know weird takes on happy endings. I guess. Oh yeah, yeah. But I I think the film backs it up and earns it and justifies it and. Uh, I think if you're interested in, I think you're right in calling it an experiment. If you're interested in a weird experiment on on romance stories, this, I mean, it's a fascinating movie. It is. It's definitely fascinating. Uh, yeah. it's, it's not perfect, but for me, it's eminently watchable. And uh, for what it's trying to do, I think it couldn't have done it much better. So in the sense, it is sort of perfect for what I want it to be and what I think it should it try to be. So, yeah. Recommended for people who want to, you know, if you're doing the Anderson story thing, I don't think a lot of people will think this is the favorite, the pick of the litter. And I'm, I'm sure as we go into the next three films, you know, my, my mind could change entirely. You know, this is, this is, we're getting into the weird stuff now. I like weird stuff. So here we go. But, um, 
at, at this point in time, this this is this has ticked more boxes than any for me. So that's definitely, fine. but I mean, you've you've sold me on the fact that it might be a character study, and I'm gonna, I'm looking forward to watching it again with with what you've brought forward because I hadn't seen it like that, and I'm looking forward to seeing it like that as well. And that I mean shows just how good the movie is. Yeah, uh, exactly. You look at you got I, I two total at, totally unrelated takes from that film. I mean, exactly, and that's I, crazy. Mine's not even a take actually. I'm just looking at it from pure. Like the way I watch movies is just like, yeah. what's the one thing there that I like about? The, oh, there it is. You know? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, we didn't even talk about Lena and how her development helps. We didn't talk about the the the, the sound design, which I think is just majestic. I mean, oh, it's yeah, a final nod to Robert Altman. You know, even he's using Shelley Duvall's "He Needs Me" from the Popeye soundtrack as a, <laughs> a direct directed by Robert Altman. You know, it was a beautiful way. You know, and I love that song and how how. You know, the relationship between those two characters is really in that weird, kitschy song. He needs me. He needs me. Yeah. You know, yeah. You're, you're listening to it. And you're like, it fits so well in that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I there's so much more to talk about, but we have to cut this short. The episode's long enough as it is right now. Yeah. And give so you, I think give my, you some food for food for thought. Put it that way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can look at it. I mean, try to watch it with Lee's stuff in mind. Watch it with my stuff in mind. Do both. And uh, it do both, you know, and it'll be great. You guys will get something out of it. And if you have anything that you need to comment on that we haven't talked about, which is a lot, feel free to share <laughs> it with us. We're looking forward to it because this movie definitely doesn't just have one thing going for it. It has plenty. And right. so, yeah. Next up is going to be There Will Be Blood, which is slightly more violent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> slightly. <laughs> I don't just know. This slightly. film was pretty violent. <laughs> it was. It was. So, Lee, let's close this off. Right. Where can we find you, dear sir? Hey, yep. You can see me on uh, bigpicturereviews.co.uk. We got um, a new writer as of this recording day, which was a Sunday. Right, Lawrence. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a. Uh, I mean, one of, he's one of my oldest friends. Uh, we've been getting these uh, advance tickets to go see films, you know, screenings in, in Belfast. Master. Yeah, I know, I know. Like we're really getting treated to get spoiled here uh awesome. but it's it's they're like in the afternoon so i can't i can't see the, the films because i have to work so I, I i thought you know i have a i have a student friend he loves films he's into criticism why and i've seen him write before and he's a good writer so what what the hell why why am i why haven't i extended the olive branch earlier you know so yeah he's he's done a review for arrival uh that's up already so absolutely check out lawrence's stuff and uh you can get me on twitter at big pick reviews and that's me good my name is jason michael uh you guys can find me on twitter at film underscore faculty i don't have any new writers i still have the same <laughs> you have and a full I'm house anyway i'm still writing right now i have uh, a couple of things that i want to shoot out where lee and i were talking off we were talking off air earlier and i have a couple of things christmas is coming i'm gonna have a little bit more time to write i did put out a review for dr strange so feel free to go read that That's right. i had an interesting theory on the watch and a lot of people thought i was a little bit of a crackpot theory again <laughs> uh, but that doesn't matter uh, I'm there for those crackpot theories and I had a lot of fun with that uh, next up we are going to be talking about Arrival Very and sad. I can't wait for it I am looking forward to seeing it again we talked about uh, it this is, this, is the, this is the first complete circle in our first episode we saw yep. the trailer for Arrival and our, the teaser and we yep. made our vow 
not to watch any more trailers and we've exactly. done it and we've seen the film now and you know there's yes. a there's a nice long arc there for our show so if you're long time listeners here we go payoff time <laughs> payoff time yeah we walked in almost blank blank yeah definitely as, as blank as you can be as a critic <laughs> so that's it be sure to visit the film faculty and big pick reviews that's is us signing off we hope you enjoyed part two of the Paul Thomas Anderson retrospective. Stay tuned. Next week is Arrival. And the week after that, we will be back with There Will Be Blood. And I'm not repeating that again. It sounded too awesome. Yeah, damn right. <laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. Have a good one. See ya. Bye-bye. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. And all at once I knew, I knew at once, I knew he knew.